Hello everybody and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Now, if you read last week's edition, you will see that ChatGPT referred to Health Tech Pigeon as Health Tech News so fresh we slapped it to see if it was still alive. James, Hugh, I'm not sure about you, but I think we probably need to go back to our original tagline. Yep, I'd absolutely agree with that. I think we should stick with it. <laughs> Check it out. Keep it new. Uh, jury's out on that one. Audience and readers and listeners, jury's out, but maybe cast your votes. So let's get into our stories. First up, we have... In TechCrunch, Lindus Health, UK clinical trial startup, backed by none other than Peter Thiel, raises a cool $18 million. That is an impressive raise right now, but at any time. And earlier, we caught up with co-founder Michael to find out more about what they did, how they got there, and what they're planning to do with that impressive sum of money. Delighted to announce that we just raised a, an $18 million Series A, um, led by Creandum, and then with participation from all of our existing investors, including Peter Thiel, First Minute, Seed Camp, Hamburg Perks. It's been a pretty quick process, which is which is awesome. I mean, I know these things can drag on and founders get uh, sucked into, into fundraising rather than actually growing the company. And so, yeah, delighted that we can we can now use this and actually focus on on what matters, which is achieving our mission of, of getting new treatments to patients uh, by running faster, better clinical trials. What do you mean by faster, better clinical trials? How do you actually do that? Yeah, so the way that clinical trials are traditionally run is pretty bad. It's a biotech company or a pharma company will outsource all of a clinical trial to what's called a contract research organization. And these organizations are effectively billing by the hour, but outsourcing all of the actual trial delivery to, to sites linked to, to hospitals. Because of that billing by the hour model, they're not incentivized to run trials faster, to use technology or to use innovative trial methodologies. And the result is that over the last 20 years, the cost of running trials has increased exponentially. But that doesn't just hurt those individual companies, but actually puts a cap on the number of trials that can be run, the amount of R&D that's going into this space. And so what we're trying to do is, is replace that, that contract research organization industry with new techniques for running clinical trials, like fundamentally un underpinned by technology. And that means that we can speed up everything from setting up the platform, patient identification and recruitment, a better patient experience on the clinical trial, but also use that to enable a completely new methodologies for delivering the trials, things like decentralized clinical trials with people taking part from home, or adaptive clinical trials where you actually start with much smaller sample size and expand that. And the result of that is that the speed of the trial increases, the cost comes down, and ultimately, like that, not only improves the, that individual treatment, but removes clinical trials as a bottleneck, so that far more biotechs can can come into the market and, and get their treatments to patients over the next ten years. Nice. So you see yourself as, I suppose, facilitating quite a lot of uh, new innovation as well. So my next question would be: How do you spend eighteen million dollars? I couldn't spend that if I tried. Like that would just give me anxiety given that we've bootstrapped. So I mean, like, how do you spend 80 million quid, mate? That's, that's a great question. I mean, look, we, we raised slightly more than we'd we'd initially set out to do. And I think that that's a privileged position to be in. I mean, that that does mean that we have runway and that we can we're, we're secure to be able to like take longer term bets. Um, but it, it also just means that we can 
we can invest a lot more in our product over the next couple of years. So we're going to be scaling the, the product and technology team. There are particular things around machine learning for trial design, automating trial monitoring that are research intensive activities that will pay off over the next few years. But that means that we have to, to invest that in the, in the immediate term. And, and the other thing for us is that you know, we're, we're still a, a young company. You know, we're growing very quickly, but you know, we're getting that commercial traction and we're going to be investing in the commercial team so that, that we can grow faster. I mean, you know, to take it back a step, you bootstrapped and I'm you know, somewhat envious of that sometimes when think of the, you know, the Faustian bargain we've made, you, know, you, have to, you take the VC money and then you have to use it to keep going faster. So yeah, I mean, it, you know, with, that, with that money comes the expectation of faster growth. So definitely part of that is the commercial team scaling as well. So you won't be doing a Hippocratic AI and coming back in uh, October with another 30 million announcement? No, I, no, I think the longer that we can go without having to raise another round, like, yeah, I see as a positive, like focus on, on doing what matters. Um, yeah, the 18 million should, should, should last us a little bit of time. You mentioned right at the beginning that you raised quicker than you expected to. And lots of our listeners, our founders themselves, um, are on a journey to raise money themselves. And while I'm sure they will be delighted for you with such an impressive raise, they'll also probably be spitting feathers at the fact that you're able to do it so quickly, given just how tough it is at the moment. So I'd love to hear more about like what did quick look like for you? And what do you think was the key to accelerating that and getting to where you did as fast as you did? Yeah, no. And, and look, we're speaking to founders all the time who've, who've had slower processes. I mean, I, I think for us, like timing was an important piece of it. You know, it came after a particular period of fast growth and, and you know, that we were able to point to like increased like product market fit. Health tech or health, health is, in, you know, is obviously harder because particularly at this stage of rounds, you're often doing that with relatively early stage clinical data. And so people are taking a, a bigger, bigger bet. And so like we are in an advantageous position, like you know, we're revenue generating already, which if you're a health company is, it m- might be a few years down the line. I've got some specific tips on how to play that fundraising. And my, my co-founder, Mary, did an amazing job of actually you know, meeting with most of the VCs. You know, I think it's, it's important to try and to do it as quickly as possible. It might be painful, but you know, target having as many conversations as possible, have all of your materials and de- you know, decks, data room ready to go. You, you don't want to give people an excuse to pass and you know, use that to drive interest as quickly as possible. And you know, happy if anyone has wants tips or wants introductions to, to VCs, please do reach out and always very happy to, to, to make introductions or get, give advice. So yeah, I, I, I think it's the, the healthcare services business is, is probably slightly easier than the earlier stage, but there is money out there and for great companies, I think that you know, with the amount of dry powder, like you can run a very quick round if you plan that properly. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about Peter Thiel. So obviously, headline name on the on the headline for this announcement, but also back in June, and sort of his involvement was trailed as well. How how has that helped? Uh, how did that come about? Just love to know more. Yeah, great question. So yeah, we were introduced to, to Peter by one of our angel investors, and. It was a fascinating series of conversations. The questions from from Peter and his team were very different to the questions we got from typical VCs. Like typical VCs will often focus on like short-term execution risk. And Peter and the team are all focused on how big could this be? What is your long-term moat? Rather than and then trust us to do the short-term execution piece. And like that is a much more exciting conversation to have than like going into you know, specific account line items or something, which we you know, we have had VCs do uh, in the past. Um, I think there's a big difference between European and US VCs generally. 
And like the, the sooner that you can get US involvement on the VC front, I, I definitely recommend that. How, how has that helped? I mean, obviously that, that branding piece, I mean, our press release, you know, did, <laughs> led with Creandum and mentioned Peter Thiel as a sideline, but of course the, the Thiel aspect has, has generated a lot of publicity. Um, and that's largely beneficial. You know, Peter has talked a lot in the past about his frustrations with with the clinical trial process, uh, and I you know I don't think we're doing some of the some some of the stuff that's quite as radical as, as he's spoken about in the past. But like ultimately, it is all about trying to get new treatments to market, and you know, we are motivated by a similar you know, ultimate objective. Like the KPI that would mean we've been successful is human life expectancy increasing or healthy life expectancy increasing. The fact that that has stagnated or declined over the last 20 years, I think, is deeply depressing, sort of damning verdict on, on healthcare. And clinical trials will play a big part in, in reversing that. It's taking a lot on yourself to uh, have human life expectancy as a uh, KPI for your business. But uh... you've, got to have a, you've got to have an ambitious mission. And like, I, I honestly think that you know, the, the fact that clinical trials have become so much more expensive over the last 20 years is why pharma biotech has been sort of pushed but as a second order effect into increasing focus on oncology and rare because that's where you can you can run trials more economically the economics stack up much more quickly from a payor perspective but if you can make trials an order of magnitude cheaper or faster like that's where it actually becomes economical to run trials in in mental health diabetes um alzheimer's you know all the things that actually have the largest impact on healthy life expectancy and so for me that is definitely a personal objective fantastic well we will let you go but thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to us today and tell us more about your raise and how you got there i'm sure there will be plenty of people who will be taking up you up on your offer for advice and for i'm sure introductions <laughs> um not least to peter teal himself so congratulations really really impressive stuff and we are really looking forward to seeing where you go from here so thank you so much Thanks, Michael. Uh, one thing I'm just going to add is uh, the Financial Times did do an article called Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos and the Quest for Immortality, having a look at some of their investments. So if you are more interested in their thesis broadly, uh, check out that FT article. Yeah, I, um, yeah the Bezos, is, they, there's this Altos Labs that they put a lot of money into. Um, we've not yet got them as a customer, but I'd love to do some more of the longevity stuff. Like that's what just position, you know, the types of trials that CROs won't be able to run. Huge yes, James. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. And uh, yeah, I mean, anyone else, anyone out there who, who wants to chat, please do reach out. Thanks very much, everyone. So our next story is the story that keeps on giving, not just in health tech, but everywhere. So it seems I barely need to say the words Babylon and Aliparsa for you to know what I'm talking about. But the latest that we're seeing at the moment is that it looks as if Babylon are withdrawing from the US imminently or have withdrawn from the US. I think looks like last week, according to this article from Forbes. And God, this this story really is taking some twists and turns. And there's there's still no clarity on what is going to happen to Babylon and who is going to maybe acquire different parts of the business and what the future might hold. But what really stood out to me is um, they interviewed a patient here who 
got a message to say that their services are no longer available and they need to find an alternative and actually has not provided any other options um, and has kind of left it to the patient to find out what that might look like. So, I mean, for me, that really strikes a chord because I think I've said before, I have used GP at hand. I'm still registered with GP at hand and I'm kind of just waiting for the moment where I'm not able to book an appointment anymore and dreading it a little bit, knowing that we've looked into registering at a local GP practice and I have to go into a building. So not least inconvenient for me personally, and I'm sure many other people, but I think the sad fact of the matter is that there's a lot of people who in the last week or so have clearly lost their jobs. And, you know, I would hate to see this as a signal that perhaps people are going to be losing faith in healthcare technology and and that it's hopefully not a sign of what is to come for the future. But James, Hugh, what's your take on this one? Or at least this latest twist in the story? I mean, the, the bombshell from this is that the result of the forced delisting or, you know, aggressive delisting, as it was uh, called in the last development in this uh, long running saga, was that they'd gone, they'd been taken private by Albacore and that they were going to be merged with another company called Mind Maze. And the result would be a joint company of a digital therapeutics and Babylon's remaining assets. I think what's what's stunning is that 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 didn't work, and I don't think there's any information yet as to why that was. But I'd be very keen to know. And um, I think looking forward for the for the UK business, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. Will it be picked up by a peer, or could there be another attempted merger with a with a slightly different health tech or digital therapeutics application? Is there is there the opportunity that we could see at least you know? any of the technology, any of the assets or sort of any of the team move on to something bigger. I think you're totally right. And going back to what you said about that, you know, what looked like it was going to be a, a um, previous kind of merger and, and takeover. I remember when that came out thinking, I really just, this is not an obvious coupling to me. Babylon doesn't strike me as a digital therapeutic, certainly not my experience of it as a company and its products. And so I, I couldn't make sense of that initially, but what I've really noticed is that the Babylon camp have stayed so quiet, so quiet in, well, throughout all of this, and, and in many ways, understandably so. But I think going back to my point about patients, you know, there are lots of people in the US who have now been left without care that they ultimately rely on. And there's nothing in place to, to close that gap or fill that gap. And my, my worry is that you know, there are many others around the world like that, not least, again, you know, also people in jobs who are facing potentially redundancy and that sort of thing. But, you know, to what you're saying as well about who is going to be potentially a collaborator or lead a takeover, is it a peer or another? I think I have to call out um, Kai from Sifted and his coverage of this uh, saga, as you rightly call it. Um, He's done a really good job of kind of delving into what little we actually do know and we have heard. And so often in all of these stories, regardless of the publication they're in, you know, there's been no comment from Babylon. Um, and so it's really hard to kind of get to the truth of the matter. And I think we're, we're very much kind of, it's all being fueled a little bit by Chinese whispers. Everyone's talking about it, but no one really has any answers. Brings us to quite a nice question there, though, uh, on, on the sort of the comms versus legal when you get into a crisis uh, point like this. And it feels, as you say, with so little information out there and the 
the sheer silence from Babylon Camp, as you put it, is is I feel like people <laughs> may have won the battle at the crisis comms table this time around. That's the only thing we seem to know for sure. I was going to say the same thing as you guys, which is essentially there's just so much we don't know. I do think though, staying quiet is, as you say, you like potentially a battle between legal and comms, but also this this does come down. I think to to leadership as well, and actually, we don't know whether the leadership internally is somewhat different to what it looks like externally. But I think I don't know if you, if you're an if you're an employee of Babylon that has acted in good faith the entire time, you're facing all of this scrutiny. I think you you might expect leaders in your company to come out and say something. Then again. We don't know what the upshot of that might be. And I don't know, it is just all a bit confusing. I think it's also frustrating because it's such a big player in our space. And for health tech, for digital health, for the digitization of healthcare, Jess, you mentioned potentially having to go into a building. What I will say is I think, I remember saying this before, I do think that no matter what happens with Babylon, the people that were part of Babylon and the innovation and the, the well, as close as I've seen to disruption in digital health has been from this company and the journey that I've gone on with them almost in the health tech space. I think there it's unlikely that you'll have to go into a building in the same way post Babylon than you would have had to have done pre-Babylon. There are plenty of things that have happened since with telemedicine and with local GP providers being able to offer lots of different ways to engage with the healthcare system, not purely because of Babylon, but I do think the innovation and the, the disruption, no matter how uncomfortable it was at the time that Babylon has offered us, has led to quite a lot down the line. And so just offering a view that despite how this might end for them and for people associated, I think there have been benefits. So here's a question. You know the old saying in big tech, for every thousand employees that are laid off, that's a thousand new startups (laughs) um, that are out there to disrupt or something ridiculous like that. When it comes to Babylon, do you think this this means that a year from now there could be hundreds of truly disruptive digital health startups that you know may, might have seen what went wrong and uh, work out the work out the kinks do something new and disrupting health and a follow up to that after babylon will there be the cash to fund them so my view on this is that there will be a lot of people that have seen how an organization can do certain things that were previously called impossible or previously called too difficult or after being told you can't do that they've seen it happen i've talked to so many people on the health tech podcast that have started companies having been close to a c-suite that did the impossible in inverted commas or, or did something that was called incredibly difficult or a version of that so in answer to your question yeah i think there are going to be individuals part of this company that have seen the good and the bad but will find their own way 
of doing those good things. We've seen, I mean, we've seen multiple startups come out come out of companies like Humor and start starter uh, starters of companies that have left an organization like that. There've been multiple founders from Humor and of Babylon. I've seen I've seen it previously as well. So I definitely think you learn something and. I think being part of that, as I say, you'll see the good, you'll see the bad, you'll decide to bring the strings to your bow that you want to add from there. And I'm sure there are plenty that people will want to add and perhaps some that they don't. But yeah, I think it will have taught a a cohort of people how to innovate, taught a cohort of people how to do certain things, but potentially also taught them how not to do certain things and they'll bring the good with them. So will there be money for them? Well, that's that's however much you want to attribute this to a loss in confidence and therefore any, I guess, downstream funding effects as a result. I think broadly the the economy plus this, who knows what the answer is. Um, uh, will this have a really significant effect on the funding into digital health? I don't know. That's one thing that the silence might be helping, in all honesty, because I've not seen this make national news in the same way as a, a WeWork or a, a similar startup that more people in the country know about i guess so yeah you you do raise a really good point though james that ultimately babylon for many people was the first digital health company they'd ever heard of and in the early days that they made so many inroads that really did pave the way for digital health and i think you know once this is all over and maybe we understand a bit more about it i'd be really interested in someone doing a post-mortem on on the rise and fall of Babylon because there are lots of lessons that can be learned from it and I think you know as you rightly point out it's very easy to talk about the things that aren't going right the concerns the speculation but there are still positive things that can be learned from this and that ultimately and I'm sorry for using this word Hugh catalyze something of a paradigm shift and yes i think that um covid was relatively instrumental in that but i think what it did was get people a lot more comfortable with digital health and its potential and allowed it, it just paved the road for other people to i guess follow so i'd be interested if anyone would like to do that post-mortem and share the results with us come and talk about it the the offer is open the other thing that I'm also thinking with regards to the silence is that I wonder, yes, maybe legal have won that battle, but also maybe they don't know. There've been so many twists and turns, so many changes in things we thought were happening that are now no longer happening and also mixed messages that part of me thinks that maybe they're not sure and there actually isn't anything to communicate because they maybe don't have a plan or a clear strategy or a clear buyer or whatever it might be. And I do think that there is something about like, you know, it's good crisis comms doesn't mean you necessarily have to commit to anything, but it is about creating confidence that things are under control. But yeah, I I just wonder whether they're still working it out. And on that note, I think there's a lot here that remains to be seen. Um, and I'm sure more details will follow us into the next week and the weeks beyond, and this won't be the last time we talk about it. But I'm looking forward to the next update in the saga, and I'm looking forward to whoever would like to do that post-mortem to understand the highs and the lows. 
our next story has one of the best headlines that I've seen in a while. And it simply says, NHS staff just want tech that works. And it's brought to us by Digital Health and talks about some of the research that BT has recently done that suggests almost half of NHS staff find digital technology a key source of stress. Now, I think that's a real dichotomy when you consider that most technologies, if not all health technologies that I know of and that I've worked with and that we work with, really are setting out to solve challenges, not least for patients, but for clinicians and NHS staff too. So Hugh, James, where do you think this source of stress is coming from? I think the stress is coming from two different places. I think the stress, and perhaps I'm biased because of my own experience, but reading this article and then combining it with my own experience, I think poor user experience is the is the first thing. So I've experienced it. It's mentioned in this article that ultimately a new innovation will come along, a new piece of tech will come along, and actually the buyer of the tech is not the person that uses the tech. The user of the tech is unable to influence the buying decision. I think that is number one, where this disconnect starts. It's literally a disconnect between the person who buys it and the person who uses it. And so I think that's the first thing that causes stress. The second thing that I think causes stress is the expectation that as a member of the NHS, as a a staff member of the NHS, you are expected to reduce your overall efficiency temporarily, arguably, to learn how to use a new piece of tech and to change your processes and to change what you do. You're expected to do that to then get up to speed with something. And that, I think, is like a practical way of explaining adoption and so many things get thrown around about oh adoption's difficult adoption's this adoption that like everyone talks about adoption everyone likes to talk about adoption ultimately that's a really big component of it which is essentially like hold on a minute what i do works i've got to see 30 patients today but you're expecting me to now do it on this new piece of thing or something that, that like i've got to do something different or do something extra or do something blah And I've got to do that as well as seeing my 30 patients so that eventually I might only have to see 20 patients. It's like, well, no deal. So I think stress comes from there personally as well. And, you know, they mentioned this article about thoughtful innovation. I think the best, most thoughtful innovation is thoughtful around that component. The ease at which you can be trained, the ease at which this will slot in the ease at which you will go from your current process to your next one using this technology and so where the user of technology is a member of nhs staff i believe there is too much expectation on them versus reaping the benefits so i would say that's where the stress comes from it's twofold i 100 percent agree on that james and i think where there's a real challenge there is that a lot of that burden of learning and of changing your processes and adapting is, as you say, placed on the clinician, placed on the healthcare worker. But learning is an institutional thing. Process and policies are an institutional change. And introducing a new technology, a new solution, it's important to jump in here and before I finish this point and just say a lot of that stress is going to come from legacy tech as well, because some of it is just inadequate. But even when you then replace it with a new solution and expect people to learn, you've got to put the legwork in to change the institution 
so that it fits in. It is not simply enough to say that technology is the goal. Technology can support the goal. And before you start looking at tech, it's really important to be like, what doesn't work about what we've got now? And not just, you know, is our tech a bit rubbish or, you know, is the screen freezing or is it not a super accessible product? But what process is it fundamentally supporting that could be changed and revised? And that's when the real issue is, how do we take time to understand that and really get people involved in the design of a process and find a solution that will support its change? Even with some of our clients, we see uh, people come, you know, their users feedback and say, oh, it didn't do what we wanted it to. And then you see why. And it's because they've just bought it, switched it on, and it's not working because they've Mm -hmm. not been through the process. They've not, the the institution hasn't taken the time to work out or work with the company um, to find out how it can be used better and what, what, what improvements it can support because it's, I know I feel like I'm repeating myself a bit now, but technology isn't the improvement in it in itself. It's the enablement of that improvement. Yeah, there's a thing there's a thing about cooks and broth here for me and too many of them perhaps. And I think in order to make a change, that's not me saying there's too many NHS staff, far from it. But I think where you're expecting, as you say, a change that needs to be made at institutional level or policy level, and then how that actually comes down to the practical level and Already there's loads of levels there. Already there's so many humans across all those levels that are needed to implement a new thing. Contrast that with, you'll know if I want to make a change here of like, oh, we need to use this new platform because I think it will be good. There's a bit of space to test and try it. There's a bit of space to go, well, actually, what would what would be needed? There's a bit of space to go, well, how do we change from this to that? And I'll step in and give my time and capacity in order to facilitate that. And goodness knows, moving from .co.uk to .health emails has needed a ludicrous amount of my time to do and would not recommend that anyone changes their domain as a means of affecting their brand if it's not going to give significant benefit. Full disclosure, Pigeon listeners, I am still working out how to uh, access both of my emails and if I don't show up to a meeting. See, he's using um, this as an excuse. However, I know for a fact that the way that I've said it, let's not get into it. Let's not get into it. Let's take this offline. Let's take this offline. The other thing I was going to mention is uh, another, it's, it's a move from BT as well to publish this. And actually, obviously, um, was it digital.net? Yeah, digital.net picked, picked it up. But this is, a, this is BT research. And it actually shows that BT are increasingly looking to get into health innovation. If you go to, what is the website? I think it's almost like BT com forward slash health or something they've they've literally got uh yeah bt.com forward slash bt health they're doing a lot or aiming to do a lot and doing increasing amounts in health innovation and so bt becoming an increasingly uh big force um hopefully for positive change and we know they're working with febris um on virtual ward type stuff we know that they're obviously looking at working with startups that kind of thing and so yeah they released this report um which is their 2023 uh, health report, which they're calling Mind the Gap. Lovely infographic there, which says a lot of things about infrastructure and all the rest of it. Obviously, BT being an infrastructure play, they want to sell the need for various infrastructure things like Wi-Fi um, and things like that. So, yeah, it's interesting. But obviously, BT looking to make a big change in healthcare, which is, uh, yeah, very welcomed. Well, on that note, I feel like we've been on a real roller coaster journey today gone through the highs, the lows of raising, of Babylon, and now 
the stresses of NHS staff. So it's been a great week and a great discussion. So thank you both and uh, look forward to seeing you next week.